Well, we have sung much of what we are going to look at this morning in the scriptures. Turn with me to John 19. John 19, entering into this chapter. In the first eight verses, John 19, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And it is a scene that we should never become desensitized to. It is here in the palace of Pilate, the king of glory, the creator of the world, is humiliated before his accusers. And he is beaten for sport. He is mocked as a comic king. He is then presented before the people as a bloodied fool. It's a stark scene. It's meant to jar our senses for sure as Jesus takes one more step closer to his cross. Let's read the text to set in our minds starting in verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. This is humiliation at its deepest level, and again, as I said, this should shock us. It should be a scene we want to turn our eyes away from. It's evil at its core. It's grotesque. It's uncomfortable to read. And yet it is a a scene that has been prophesied to occur in God's sovereign design. This is Isaiah 50 working itself out. Isaiah 50, as Christ gave his back to those who strike him, referring to the scourging, and did not cover his face from humiliation and spitting. This is Isaiah 52 being fulfilled as Christ's appearance was marred, defaced, beaten more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. In fact, one translation, paraphrase of this verse puts it this way, so disfigured, did he look that he seemed no longer human? This is Isaiah 53. As Christ is despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the sorrow of pain, the grief of rejection. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And thus he was scourged so that we might be healed, healed from our sins. 
This is the humiliation Christ must endure if he is going to be the promised savior from sin we need. As we work our way through the scene here, though there are many applications we can draw from this text, many applications, the main application I want us to keep in mind as Christ is disfigured and scorned and humiliated, the main application is this, his love for his people. His love for his people. This is the application John wants us to see. Think back to chapter 13. As Jesus' Passion Week begins, what are we told? That Christ, having loved his own who are in the world, Christ loved them to the end. He loved them to the fullest extent possible. He loved them to the max, to the extreme. Put it in these words. He loved us to the point of disfigurement and humiliation and beating and ultimately crucifixion. J.C. Ryle has put it this way. We see the savior of mankind scourged, crowned with thorns, mocked, smitten, rejected by his own people, unjustly condemned by a judge who saw no fault in him, and finally delivered up to a most painful death. What's the application? Let us admire that love of Christ, which Paul declares passes knowledge. And let us see an endless depth of meaning in that expression. There is no earthly love with which it can be compared and no standard by which to measure it. It is a love that stands alone. Never let us forget what we ponder here in this tale of suffering. That Jesus suffered for our sins. Why? Because of his love for us. The just for the unjust, a sacrificing love for the ungodly. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And that with his stripes, we are healed again from our sins. It's a dark passage. It's a dark passage. There's evil here. And yet the beauty of Christ's love shines bright. Because Christ's love is shining against the blackness of sinful man's humiliation of him. There are six humiliations the king of kings endures here. Six humiliations, all because of his love for us, his people. Begin with humiliation number one. Humiliation number one. In love, Christ received a humiliating beating. A humiliating beating. Verse one sets the stage. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And no, this is Pilate beginning now to make one last attempt to release Jesus. One last attempt. Pilate has heard the cries of the crowd that ended chapter 18, given the choice to release Barabbas, the hardened criminal, the one who is a threat to the people, or to release Jesus, the foolish man who claimed to be a king, the crowd, to the surprise of Pilate, look at verse 40. They cry out, not this man, not Jesus. 
Give us Barabbas. And so Pilate now in verse one, he's making one last ditch effort to release a man he knows to be innocent. And here's his plan. Since the crowd wants Jesus' blood, they've cried for it. Since the crowd wants Jesus' blood, that is what Pilate will give them just short of death. So the thought is this, if Jesus is beaten enough and humiliated enough and embarrassed enough, then it should be enough to squelch the chief priest's murderous fury, stop them from stirring up the people. Should be enough, why? Because the chief priests want Jesus dead because they are afraid of his popularity. Pilate knows that. But in Pilate's mind, after the beating, he is going to give Jesus. No one will ever listen to Jesus again. No one will follow him. Should be enough for the chief priests. And for the crowd, they get a two for one. They get to watch a man who foolishly claimed to be their king and he's beaten and bloodied. And then they get a murderous robber Barabbas crucified, two for one. So what we read in Luke 23, Pilate tells the chief priests and the crowd, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore I, Pilate speaking, will punish him, scourge him, humiliate him, and then release him. That's the plan. That's what Pilate tries to do in verse four. Notice verse four, Pilate came out again after the beating and said to them, behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, this is his last ditch effort to satisfy the people, ease his own conscience and release an innocent man. Back to verse one. Thus Pilate scourged him. This is Isaiah 53 being fulfilled. Jesus is flogged. This is a cruel and merciless beating According to the historians of the day, Jesus would have been brought out of Pilate's palace. He would have been brought out into the public square before the people. Jesus would have been stripped naked, bound to a post. His arms would be tied together. His arms stretched high above the head so he could not defend himself. And then he would have been whipped leather strap, two men standing on each side of him, each whip woven with bits of bone or lead or bronze. It's a whip fittingly called a scorpion. Why? Because sometimes hooks were attached at the end of the thongs. Two men are taking their way with him. One historian, Eusebius, writes this, some martyrs were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. It's evil. Scourging was so horrible that Suetonius, another historian, claimed it was so horrific, the cruel emperor Domitian, the one who banished John to Patmos, that emperor was appalled by it. One medical doctor writes this. 
The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. And do not forget, all of these lashes are being meted out upon God. It's the creator who's being humiliated here. He's been stripped naked by his creation. He's been bound to this post. Ask the question why, answer because of what John told us back in chapter 13, because Jesus is loving his own to the end, to the max. This is Jesus willingly in love, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 5, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, this flogging, we are healed, we're healed spiritually. It is in the scourging that Jesus' vicarious atoning sacrifice for sin now commences. This is why the Father will not deliver his Son. This is where the forsaking of the Father begins. And it is at this point that the floodgate of mockery and beating breaks upon the head of God's Son. leads into humiliation number two. Humiliation number two. In love, Christ receives a humiliating crown. A humiliating crown. Beaten and bloody, Jesus is now removed from public view. He's taken back into Pilate's residence. Verse two tells us by the soldiers, but once inside this holding room, Mark's gospel says this. They, the soldiers called together the whole Roman cohort. It's a sinister statement. The whole company of soldiers is now summoned. And because these soldiers were stationed at Pilate's residence, these would be elite legionnaires, highly trained. In this case, perhaps numbering as many as 200 to 300 of these soldiers and they are summoned to make sport of Jesus. Trained soldiers who want nothing more than to get their hands on Caesar's supposed rival. And so they first, verse two, twisted together a crown of thorns. Twisted together a crown of thorns. They took palm date branches, normally covered with spikes, three inches, four inches, sometimes up to 12 inches, there's mocking here. This is the same plant that produced the leaves the crowd waved when they welcomed Jesus into town. You remember back in chapter 12, they took the branches of the palm trees. They began to shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a scorning here of Christ's kingliness with this crown. They shaped the branches. They fit it upon 
his head. Verse two, they put it on his head. And note here, this crown was not primarily meant to cause Jesus physical pain, not yet. At this point, primarily, this crown was meant to humiliate Jesus. Most of the thorns were probably turned outward, outward. So to act as a mocking rendition of the wreaths Gentile kings would wear. In this case, the thorns are a sardonic picture of the king's radiance and glory, beams of radiance and splendor. Jesus thinks himself to be a God king, will dress him up like a God king. And yet there's glory here. There's evil, but there's glory. Because unbeknownst to these soldiers, in their ridicule of Jesus, they have actually given us a picture of Christ's loving sacrifice he is about to offer for his people. Jesus is now, through their evil, he is now wearing the very symbol of our sin. Think of Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. Every thorn is a reminder of man's fall into sin. Now Christ is wearing God's symbol of his curse. And amazingly, it has been fitted perfectly and placed on the head of the creator. The crown of sin now rests upon the king of righteousness. Leads directly into humiliation number three. Humiliation number three, in love, Christ receives a humiliating robe. A humiliating robe. Kingly parody is just getting started. If Jesus was Caesar's rival, then these soldiers would dress him up as such. And so they make this cosmic king. We read that in John 1. The beginning was the word. The word was with God. The cosmic king. He's the creator. They make this cosmic king into a comic king. And according to Matthew 27, they once again strip Jesus naked, pull his clothes off, his flogged back, once again aggravating his wounds. Verse 2 here, and the soldiers put a purple robe on him, a robe, a color reserved for imperial royalty. Matthew calls it a scarlet robe. This would have either been a faded outer cloak of one of these hundreds of soldiers, what was once scarlet, scarlet has now faded into purple. Possibly even an old faded rug. And they drape it over Jesus' body. But again, it is love that we must see here because this faded scarlet, now purple robe is a picture of what must take place if Christ's people are going to be forgiven of their sins. It's a picture. They don't know it. The soldiers don't know it. Think of Isaiah 1. Though your sins are as scarlet, this faded robe being a picture of our sin, your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. That's the promise. 
Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. They will be forgiven. Sinners will be cleansed one day. So again, unbeknownst to these soldiers, this is a picture of what God the Father is going to do to Christ when he hangs on the cross. The Father will drape our sin upon his Son. It's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our sin perfectly fitted on Christ and punished by the Father. Our sin. First Peter 2 continues, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that Christ's robe of righteousness could be perfectly fitted and placed on us. His robes for mine. We sang it earlier. For by his wounds you were healed, you were forgiven. Scarlet sin made white like wool. This is the height of God's love for his people. Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ took our sin, he bore our curse, he endured our punishment, he died for us. So God demonstrates his love towards us. It's the height of love. A humiliating robe, a mocking crown that pictures the beauty of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The beauty of the gospel when God the Father made his son who knew no sin. Sinless, perfect, righteous. The Father makes his son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The Father placed the thorns on his son's head. The Father put that sinful garment on his son's body. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Declared righteous. Not our righteousness. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ. Our sin to him is righteousness to us so that we receive his forgiveness. We're credited with his perfection. It's the glory of the gospel. Again, his robes for mine, and we sang it, a wonderful exchange. It's a picture of Christ's love that leads then into humiliation number four. In love, Christ receives a humiliating reverence. A humiliating reverence. Verse three, they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. The verbs there came up and say, imperfect tense, it's a picture. See this. Every soldier after soldier approaches Jesus in mock homage. Every soldier says, hail, a greeting reserved for Caesar. It means be glad. Be glad, Jesus. It's nothing more than ridiculous satire, a way to complete their humiliation of this man. Matthew adds that these soldiers knelt before Jesus and they offered him mock worship. 
But again, more is going on here. More is going on. Because again, unbeknownst to these soldiers, they are actually picturing something else. They've pictured the cross. They've pictured justification and forgiveness and substitution. But here, they're picturing something that has also been prophesied, but not on the cross, but prophesied when Christ returns. This is a picture of what is promised in Isaiah 45. That to me, God speaking, to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Every tongue will say, hail, king. That's the prophecy Paul has in mind in Philippians 2. These soldiers unwittingly giving a preview of the coming day when at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee, Jew, Gentile, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, whether dead or alive, even under the earth, and that every tongue, even the tongues of unbelievers, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King. Every tongue will say, hail Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Soldiers don't know they're previewing that. They're just simply offering him a humiliating reverence. It's pointing to a day of kingly coronation that's coming. So again, we see Christ's love for his people here because before that final and future kingly coronation can take place, Christ must first endure the humiliating worship of these pagan soldiers. Look at verse three again. Soldiers didn't only bow before him, but also gave him slaps in the face. Another imperfect tense. Every soldier that approaches Jesus slaps him across the face. Again, not to cause pain, but to disgrace him. Great disdain that grows. Mark's gospel tell us they kept beating his head with a reed. So now that humiliating crown of thorns is used to inflict pain. The soldiers are driving the spikes into Jesus' brow over and over again. Mark 15, 19, to add insult to injury. These soldiers were spitting on him, continually spitting on him. It's the grossest personal insult you can give a man. Ultimate humiliation, fulfilling though, Isaiah 50, verse 6, I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Why? Because in love, Christ takes it. Because in love, he does not retaliate. This leads into humiliation number five. Humiliation number five, in love, Christ receives a humiliating title. A humiliating title. The soldiers have their way with Jesus. His back has been ripped to shreds. His 
face is now swollen and bloodied. He's been embarrassed. He's been shamed, demeaned, debased. So now it's time. Now it's time for Pilate to present Jesus again to the people. Remember the plan? Pilate is hoping that the crowd will think Jesus has had enough torture inflicted on him. They'll affirm Pilate's decision to let Jesus go. Drop down to verse 4. This is why Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, that is to say, be prepared for a spectacle. Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is now the second time Pilate has announced Jesus' innocence. And then Pilate calls for the disgraced Jesus to be presented before the people. And so verse five, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He looks like a fool. One commentator explains it this way, Pilate hoped to elicit pity for Jesus as he presents this bleeding, beaten figure to them with this grotesque headdress and the pathetic insignia of his kingship draped about him. And yet Pilate is not done. He has one more mocking statement. He adds that humiliating title in verse 5, the man, behold the man. The implication is this, behold this poor, pathetic man who stands before you. Behold this miserable, beaten and disgraced creature. It's sarcasm, it's contempt. It's meant to show just how absurd the charges are that have been brought against him. Is this the king? Is this the king you want me to kill because he is leading a charge against Rome? Is that him? That's the man? Is this the insurrectionist that poses a threat to the empire? Is this the leader who is so dangerous, so threatening, you're asking me to break the law and convict him of a charge you know not to be true? saying he's no king. He's a poor, pathetic, miserable man. And yet, once again, unbeknownst to Pilate, he has just spoken far greater than he realizes. Because Jesus is the man. He is the second Adam he is the one prophesied who alone can stand in the place of sinful mankind. He's the man who would take upon himself our curse and bear our sin. He's the one prophesied back in Genesis 3. There's a coming seed. There's coming a man who will restore fellowship with God. Fellowship lost at the fall. Pilate is speaking far greater than he realizes Behold, the man, he is the savior promised. But wrapped up within this mocking title, there's something else. 
because the prophet Zechariah uses this same title to describe the coming Messiah King. This same title, title, this same wording. He describes the man who will one day wear an actual crown, not a crown of thorns, an actual crown. He'll be clothed in a kingly robe. He'll receive regal reverence and sit on a final throne. I want you to listen to this. This is Zechariah chapter 6. And notice what is prophesied. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man. Do you hear Pilate's words? Behold the man. And the prophecy is this. He will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And when you follow this man, this Messiah, this king throughout Zechariah, what you see is that this man, behold, this man is the one who, Zechariah 14, will be king over the entire earth. Pilate speaks greater than he knows. Jesus is dressed up as a king, but he will be the king, the man. So once again, we see the glory of Christ's love for his people here. It shines against the blackness of man's ridicule. One commentator put it this way, out of unspeakable love for those he came to save, he enters fully into their suffering and the consequences of their sin. Not just so as to empathize truly with them, though he does, but rather that he might truly atone for them, atone for those sins. Far from being the helpless victim on the verge of being crushed by men, Jesus is the loving victor on the verge of being vindicated by God. Pilate says, behold the man. One day God the Father will say, behold the king. He knew that only by walking the painful road the Father had set before him could, this, could his people be forgiven and set free. What kept him fixed on that course of unbelievable suffering, it was the strength of his love for those he came to save. He will love us to the fullest extent possible. Leads into humiliation number six. Humiliation number six is Jesus here in love receives a humiliating rejection. A humiliating rejection. Verse six, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, they refused to be satisfied with a mere beating. It's not enough. So they cry out, crucify, crucify, raise him on a tree. The people look at this pathetic man as being cursed by God. These religious leaders want to erase any positive memory someone might have of Jesus. And so disgusted that his plan to release Jesus has failed, continue verse six, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves. Take him yourselves. I want nothing to do with this anymore. 
Take him yourselves, you crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. There's no legal way, Pilate says, no legal way. There's no probable, probable cause, so I'm not going to sentence him to death. You take him. But those words are words of disgust. Pilate knows that Rome has not given the Jews the authority to crucify anybody. The Jews can't do this. He knows that. So it's a backhanded challenge. Pilate is saying this, you want me to break the law and crucify Jesus? You want me to break the law? Is that what you're asking me to do, expecting me to do? Well, let's turn it around. How about you break the law? How about you crucify him yourselves and then see how that plays out for you? How Rome will respond to you. Is Jesus' death worth you losing your life? And yet crucifixion is the Jews' endgame. So they make another appeal. They make another appeal. And here they're going to leverage Pilate's superstition and fear. Notice verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law. It's Leviticus 24, 16. It states this. The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely put to death. Shall be put to death. Leviticus 24, 16. We have a law. It's Lord of, a law of blasphemy. And so based upon that law, this man ought to die. Why? Verse 7. Because he made himself out to be the son of God. That's the crime. Kill him for it. That's our law. Have it become your law. He made himself out to be the son of God. That is a true statement, isn't it? It's a true statement. It's a necessity of the gospel. John 3, 16, Jesus calls himself God's son, sent by the father to save the sinner. John 5, Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God and then in the next 13 verses, Jesus calls himself God's son nine times, even though he knows they want to kill him for it. John 6, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son, referring to himself, and believes in him, in the son, will have eternal life. I'm the savior sent. I'm the son given. It's a true statement. John 10 Jesus says, I am the son of God. That's what Jesus did claim for himself. But yet, this is rejection from the chief priests. They call those claims blasphemy. Those claims are worthy of death. They offer the king one final rejection. It's a final rejection of his miracles, of his testimony, Final rejection of his deity, of his authority, of his glory. We knew it was coming, John 1. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. This is the final indignity and humiliation by the leaders of the land. And the leaders know what they're doing, they know the strategy, they knew that this accusation would stop Pilate in his tracks. 
Look at verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Fear grips Pilate. He was even more afraid. Why? Because as a polytheistic, multi-god Greek, Pilate knows the Roman myths. He's heard of stories of semi-divine gods, small g gods visiting earth in human form. They're myths, mythology. Chief priests know that. Say he claimed to be the son of God and thus Pilate is frightened. Why? Because he knows what this might mean for him. What has he just done? He's ordered the scourging of a man who claimed to be God's son. Has he just brought down the anger of the gods upon his head? And so a trial that should have ended four times already. Four times. This trial continues as a fearful pilot now has to figure out who is actually standing before him. Is he the son of God? That's where we'll pick it up next time. But until then, do not miss the application John wants us to see. Do not miss the love Christ has for his people. If you have come to Christ in saving faith, do not miss the love Christ has for you. Do not miss his love to take upon himself God's curse and our sin. No greater love. Do not miss his love that bore embarrassment and defamation and dishonor on our behalf. John 13 is true. Christ loved us to the end. He loved us to the max. Ephesians 3 is true. He loved us with a love that surpasses knowledge. A love that can never be taken away. Remember that. A love that can never be taken away from his people. Again, to quote Ryle, there is no earthly love with which it can be compared and no standard by which to measure it. It is a love that stands alone. And thus, because of that love, we have wonderful promises. Promises that say in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing. All of it's been meted out on Christ. And thus, if we are in Christ, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we are thankful that we have a God who loves us, a Savior who loves us, loves us to the end. And indeed, we will see this love even grow as evil darkens. A love of a Savior who will hang on the cross and bear your curse that we deserved. I pray that we will find great hope in this love, that we will not take it for granted. Pray, Lord, for those who might feel that they are far away 
from their savior. They have that feeling that they would go back to this truth that nothing can separate us from the love that Christ has for his people. Give us that hope, that assurance. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.